Welcome to Talk Town. Today we'll be talking with Judy Daly about her life. I've known Judy for the last 40 years as a mentor coach and friend. Hi Judy, how are you today? I'm feeling very well today, thank you. <laughs> the first question I'd like to ask you, which I do on every one of these, is what is your earliest memory? My earliest memory be trying to get out of the cot in my bedroom and I had calipers on my legs and the effort of swinging the calipers over the height of the cot made me vomit on the floor and I got into trouble. <laughs> That's my earliest memory. I don't uh, remember too much about those early years. I can only look at photographs and get a rough idea of what uh, it was like for 18 months wearing full-length calipers on my legs. Was there a reason why they did that? My mother was still breastfeeding my brother um, when she got pregnant with me and he was taking all of her available calcium and so I had soft bones and I was a child that didn't crawl, I just stood up and ran. I guess that's why I've, I just find such a joy in running. I've been running all my life. What was, um, uh, where did you grow up? Um, like, what area? Yeah, I was born on Henley Beach Road in the private uh, hospital. Um, my maiden name was Tapfield. My father was away, still fighting in the war, and so we were living at my grandparents' place. That's my mother's parents' home at Underdale, just off Henley Beach Road. And when my father came back from the war, Eventually, they were able to get a, a war loan and they built a house at uh, Plimpton and I grew up at Plimpton. Before I started school, we had an old train line right in front of us, a huge polo ground in which to play on. It was beautifully grassed and then sand hills, which continued right through to where the Torrens River comes out at West Beach the airport it now is. So we had an enormous playground as children. Uh, there was the race course at Morfittville, so there were horse stables everywhere. And as a, at that age, did you have a lot of freedom to uh, play outside or be away from the house? Yes, we did. There were no fences anywhere. No one could afford a, a fence. There was there was no risk of children just roaming around like there is today. And my mother used to put my brother and I out the back door, go and play. She would call us for tea, and we we would just disappear for the whole day. Did you um with your father coming back from the war? Was that a strange thing for him coming home? Was it how was that relationship? Um, we didn't see him a lot because he was still in the reserves for a number of years. I can remember his army greatcoat hanging in the laundry and if I didn't like what I was being given for breakfast, I used to fill his pockets with what I didn't like <laughs> and he would go to put his greatcoat on and there was this mouldy porridge or something else equally as horrible. He'd put his hands in and say, oh, yeah. Did the war affect him at all? Was yes, he came. He came home with a heart condition, which eventually he died from. He had malaria very badly, and he suffered with that for years and years and years. Once he left the army, 
totally uh, signed off with that. He was able to get work with Trans-Australian Airlines, TAA, which doesn't exist anymore. And he was on night shifts, so he was sleeping during the day, working at night, and so we didn't see much of him. So where did he fight in the war? Was he? he was in started in the Middle East, in Syria, and he was eventually called back to... Uh, fight in uh, New Guinea and Borneo. But prior to going to New Guinea and Borneo, that his uh, regiment was taken up to the Northern Territory to give them some jungle training. And before he died, he told me that they, they sprayed the trees while they were fighting in, uh, in the tropical areas up in Queensland to uh, defoliate the trees. And I'm I'm sure it was a forerunner to Agent Orange, and who knows what that did to his health and maybe to the health of my brother and I. So it's a big big question. What primary school did you go to? I went to Plimpton Primary School. I hated it. Um, Because I was considered a slow learner, I, I had to take my time. I couldn't accept things as was. I had to know the reason why. It drove my teachers crazy uh, with my questions and so I was considered a difficult student and I was considered a difficult student right through my secondary school at Vermont Girls Technical High School. Um, with the uh, was so you had a difficult time at primary school. Did you excel at sport at that age, or did you do any it, sort of sports? Thing? There wasn't a lot of sport available for girls at primary school. There was always boys' sport on a Saturday morning, but the only sport that was available for me was netball, and that was only in the last two years of primary years, and. The last year of my primary years, one of the year seven teachers took me aside and gave us gave a few other athletes uh, some training and we went to the Glenelg Oval to run against some uh, other children from Glenelg Primary School. And I ran second to a girl who had starting blocks and spikes on her feet and I was really upset, and from that day on, I decided that I was going to be able to run fast, and I wanted to have spikes, and I wanted to come off starting blocks. <laughs> so, you went to Vermont High? Went to Vermont Girls Tech. And um, what were some memories of that school? Uh, the principal was a tyrant. She had no time for girls who wanted to be involved in sport, and... All of my report cards would say at the end, if Judith spent as much time with her studies as as she does out on the sports field, she would be an A-plus student. (laughs) And they would ridicule me because uh, I was a bit slower than other other children and they said, well, you'll never amount to anything. I can still remember my commercial teacher saying to me, you will never amount to anything. Wow, that's positive Lovely. schooling. <laughs> Lovely positive. So I couldn't wait to leave school. Um, I, didn't, I didn't go any further than uh, year 11. Um, when you were at school, was it, what was the sort of social environment like? Or was it out of school, did you, like social life? 
because we're talking early com- 60s now, aren't we? Yes, it was an all-girls school, which I think is unhealthy. There wasn't a social life for me after school because I was involved in sport and the other girls would come to school on a, on a Monday morning talking about who they went with to a particular party or where they were off somewhere else doing things they shouldn't be. I was involved in sports, so I was considered a bit odd. And even when we would associate with school friends from other nearby schools like Mitcham Boys Tech, and you'd, you'd see them in the summer, they would... I would say, look, I've got to go. I've got to go to training, and they say, you're queer. <laughs> yeah. Wow, it's amazing. It's amazing hearing that in this day and age, isn't it? Yeah. So right through my childhood, they've been really derogatory remarks. So you, from when you left high school, uh, had you prior to that, had you done like, did you make teams for athletics at that stage? Were you excelling at sort of past the high school sort of level? There was. No athletics as such at uh, my secondary school. Uh, They used to have a sports day once a year, which included two running races, and I would excel at those, but that was it. And so my mother's uh, brother married a lady who was a member of the Adelaide Harriers Club, and she took me out to the Adelaide Harriers Club when I was uh, 12 years old. And I started um, training with Leonard Barnes at Adelaide Harriers uh, on the cinder track on South Terrace. How did you feel when you used to go out there? Oh, I felt great. Mm. Yeah, he would. In, uh, Len Barnes would encourage me. He used to call me Chick or Tig. Uh, he introduced me to hurdles, which I loved. He introduced me to uh, the straddle high jump, which. We used to laugh a lot about because I used he used to toss me up in the air and I'd have to work out how I'd roll around the bar, <laughs> but I'd land on my back in the sand pit and that wasn't good. <laughs> I'm sure the back problems I've got this day are partly responsible for landing in the sand pit on my back. Oh, dear, um, was there other girls in that group at that time? It's similar sort of situation to you. Uh, there's only two girls my age. All the others were senior women. Right. And it wasn't a junior sport back in those days. Track suits were, weren't worn. You had to get a track suit specially made up if you wanted one. And the same with uh, running spikes. Running spikes weren't available. You had to send to Melbourne uh, to get running spikes made by Hope Sweeney. And they would be really heavy leather running spikes with spikes sewn into the sole. Uh, like lead weights on your feet, but it was better than sand shoes. <laughs> Were they made from kangaroo hide back then as well? It was a very soft leather. I'm not sure if it was kangaroo hide, and they were always white. You can imagine white leather running shoes on a cinder track. <laughs> <laughs> so the, where was sort of the first place you worked like, um, after leaving school for a job? I worked for... A couple of accountancy firms in Adelaide um, because I had done bookkeeping at school and that's what they were interested in. Didn't like doing that. And then I worked for uh, Rawson's Electrical. They now are a very big electrical business uh, just off Marion Road. And from there I was taken into teaching via uh, the shortfall of female physical education teachers 
and I was given um, a short course on basics of teaching at Adelaide Teachers College and my first school was Mitcham Girls Tech. <laughs> and so I was thr- thrown in the deep end, mentored for about three weeks and then I was on my own. Was it the same principal that you remember there or was it a new, new crowd there? No, it was Gareth Cahoon and uh, Dulcie Perry, I think. Yeah, they yeah, they were pretty hard to deal with. <laughs> and then, I think then you went on to Brighton High. Yeah, then I went to Brighton High. So is that transfer from that school? Yes, I transferred from Mitcham because I wasn't enjoying it there with the the principal and the, the vice principal uh, were the day where we were ruling the school. I was very happy at Brighton High School. I was sports mistress and I was pretty much my own boss. Uh, the only time the principal would come and speak to me is when my budget was getting a bit low and he'd come out in the middle of my class and he, he couldn't find me because I'm pretty small and all the students were a lot taller. he eventually find me and he pulled me aside and he says, you do know that you've only got such and such in the bank. And I said, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> but nowadays, physical education teachers don't have control of their budget at all. Yeah, uh, just a set amount and that's it. That's it. Yeah. Um, so the Brighton High, um, from there you obviously were doing a lot of running at that stage yep. and competing at national level. Yeah, I was competing at national level when I was at um, teaching at Mitcham Girls. And... Um, I have to give credit to the principal there. She did acknowledge my achievements uh, when I was teaching there, um, which was very nice. So what was the first trip you went away with? They used to have a uh, a triangular trip available for juniors between Victoria, South Australia and Tasmania, and that was my first trip. I went to Victoria as a high jumper, would you believe? And in the relay. I was always a relay runner. They always put me on the first leg because I could run a bend. And I guess having short legs gives you an advantage of running around a bend. And uh, were they were very formal occasions, those sorts of trips, or was it all...? Very formal. All of all of the national um, trips were very formal. We had going out uh, uniforms. We had to wear gloves, hat, matching handbag. We had to march on the field in in uh, that full dress. Then we had to go and change and then get down to business. That uh, formality finally um, disappeared probably around the late 60s. Athletes started to complain, and quite rightly so. Did you have to buy all that gear, like the handbags and everything? We had to buy all of it. Mm. There was no sponsorship. We were always out of pocket. And more often than not, I had to be billeted because I couldn't afford to stay in the team hotel, uh, which I didn't like doing because you can't then socialise with the team, mm. being billeted out. And did you fly on those trips or was that the, the train? Most of them was bus. Bus from Adelaide? Yeah. Wow. Even up to Queensland, we would bus it. So lots of stops at the train on the way. <laughs> yeah, we used to give, be given time to go out and have a little run. But it meant that if you were working full-time, you had to take extra time off from work, and that meant your your, uh, annual holidays had to coincide with the national championships. And so my holidays were always in March, (laughs) the the nationals. So 
you also made the cross-country teams as well. Yes. Um, my first national title was in uh, 3K national cross-country up in Queensland, which I wasn't expected to win. That year they didn't send a team to the World Relay cha- uh, World Cross-Country Championships. following year I ran second. That year they only sent the winner to the net, to the world championships so I missed out all round and when the Commonwealth Games uh, track and field championships were in Christchurch in New Zealand we had trials and uh, I was run out of the uh, heat from a girl who ran out of her lane but the powers that be chose to put her in the final and not me even though I I was just really close behind her. Uh, they should have given me a run, but they didn't. Uh, I wasn't picked in the Com Games team, and I think I was pretty unlucky about that. Um, but when the Nationals followed the Commonwealth Games, I ran second to an Australian girl and uh, a New Zealander. After the, like with all the cross country and, and different sports, you then continued on did you you started coaching so when did that sort of come into your I was encouraged to coach at school uh, and I did so any any um, of my friends at school who wanted to learn a little bit about running practice relays or uh, do long jump or high jump hurdling um, I used to go out and we used to do that at lunch times uh, at school uh, I was also encouraged to go to the, the local boys' schools and help them out with their hurdling. And so really from about age 14, 15, I was um, coaching and mentoring, uh, but I didn't s- start seriously coaching until the early 1970s. Also, you've also been involved with publishing. What sort of inspired you to do that? The the the, di- the diary for women, sporting women and the uh, book that I co-wrote with Wendy I about um, hormones and female uh, athletic performance arose from both Wendy and I when we couldn't get enough information about uh, menopause, the effect of not having hormones, how did that result in poor performance or good performance and so I spent a couple of years researching that and uh, the book is a result of that research. And the training diary was to encourage women to record their menstrual cycle, which back then even it was still considered something you didn't talk about, but it has a huge impact on performance if you don't acknowledge it and work around it. And the diary, I think, has been very influential. It is trying to open up the dialogue between coach and athlete, and I think that's very helpful because when hormones are very low, when um, the female has her period, uh, that's when you would your coach would uh, just ease back on the training. Uh, and mid-cycle, when most athletes felt uh, as if they were really strong and ready for good performance that's when you would load up the training so it was a matter of education really and 
with Wendy I being in the Department of Rec and Sport, she was able to get funding and we ran some very, very successful seminars on for, for women in sport and, and the effect of hormones on their performance. Did, the, um, did, that, did you get any awards for producing those books? Yes, we did. The Department of Rec and Sport gave us... Um, awards for several years for for what we were doing. Wendy and I also wrote um, a paper for the Australian Sports Commission and uh, we won that award and there wasn't any money in it, of course, but they presented us with a huge, big, I suppose, a silver bowl that you could use as a champagne cooler. (laughs) (laughs) Never, never any money <laughs> to do do further research. It was, yeah, yeah, pretty hard. You had a, a long career also in masters athletics. Yes. Did you travel much with by running masters and yes, masters games? So, what yeah. sort of places did you go as part of the masters? My fir- first one was to Italy. Um, it was in Rome, and that was great. John had always travelled me with me on those trips. I've been to Finland and England and I was in America also with John when he was studying for his PhD uh, running there so athletics has really opened up the world to me and I've met some wonderful people and athletes that you might not see for two to four years but you run into them and it's just like it was only yesterday that you'd spoken to them so that's been Really, really good. Well, when you were in Illinois, um, did you run at university level or was it like walk-on athletics? Um, it was all closed shop to uh, the colleges. We cheated a little bit at um, Illinois. I was put in the girls' cross-country team, <laughs> wore their uniform, but the deal was that I would pull out before the finish of the race, which I did, and I ran in one of their indoor meets. It was on a a cinder track indoors, an outdoor meet. I went to Drake, the Drake Relays as an independent. That was the first race I had run where I was pushed around, scratched, kicked, spiked. <laughs> it was a real shock to the system, and that was in the first 200 metres. And so the rest of the race was a bit of a disaster. But that's just the way that the top girls run over there. They're so used to running in tight packs, and there was 14 in the field on the start line, on a waterfall start line. So lots of push, pushing and punching. Pushing and shelving yeah. and scratching. Oh. So the um, with the Masters, what did you achieve as a Masters athlete? I was very fortunate that I was able to win my age groups in the 800 and the 1500 from when I started, and I started when I was um, 35. Right. The times, I think you went to the World Masters, uh, you ran quite impressive 800 times as part of that. Yes, I was able to hold my times around the 2728 mark and I was really looking forward to turning 40 um, because I was running quicker than the world records at that time. But that's when my health took a nosedive and... I haven't been able to compete at the world level since then. 
Yeah, so it's even back at, at that age. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, you've you've um, also like basically run your own running squads. Can you just talk about some of the people you've coached or how or why you do that? I enjoy working with a squad of athletes. Uh, it's a mixture of athletes, male and female. Uh, mostly they were juniors, and I've stayed with those juniors until they're at senior level, and uh, they're they're all, they're all working or all at university now. Great mix of uh, lovely young people. Some of them train to train and some train to race. And I think having that mix is, makes it uh, work. And they, they're all prepared to work hard. Uh, I'm a volunteer. I don't charge them. I would rather they put petrol in their car and get to training. Some of them aspire to... Uh, international athletics and some are just quite happy to to run in a heat at the national championships and as long as I know where their aim is at I'm happy with that and I'd like to continue working with a squad for as long as I can probably the squad I've got at the moment have been the most successful at national level uh, Dylan Stenson, for example, uh, went to the World Relay Championship last year and he was only in his second year of uh, training for athletics. He'd, make a mo- he'd made a move from soccer. He surprised everyone at the national championships with the way he ran, but big heart and just loves it, just loves to run fast. And on the female side, probably Isabel Scott, ran a PB last season, which put her in the top 10 uh, in Australia at that particular time, which she was uh, very delighted about. Everyone else aims for PBs. I've had a couple of juniors who were in the school's um, Commonwealth Championships, were were they Mm. there in Canberra? Yeah. Yeah, and uh, that was um, Hayley Wilson and Jack Harvey. Um, and they did pretty well. Jack Harvey's done really well with his hurdling. Um, had a few accidents of late. Work-related injuries have knocked him around a little bit, but he's back on the road to recovery, and everyone's really looking forward to the following season. Have you worked in, uh, like, um, with the Coaches Association or in running workshops? And Yeah. John... A committee of people started the Australian Track and Field Coaches Association and uh, John encouraged me to get my uh, Level 2 accreditation with, with them. So I did a whole series of weeks of study and an exam to get my Level 2. Uh, that was eventually upgraded to uh, a Level 3 um, and I did my Level 4 in distance running only about six years ago, and I've been a member of uh, ATFCA since. But as Athletics Australia, am I allowed to be controversial here? No, of course. <laughs> Athletics Australia are uh, in in their endeavour to control absolutely everything. Uh, have destroyed everything that the Australian Track and Field Coach Association Coach Association have built up since the early 1970s. I mean. They, are, they were a world-renowned organisation. They printed a magazine every quarter. Yeah, so the, 
Modern Athlete and Coach was a magazine that was uh, looked forward to all over the world, and yet Athletics Australia over the last five years have deliberately destroyed that organisation to the point where it's now uh, redundant, and coaches in Australia have nowhere to go to get their accreditation. And why Athletics Australia think that they have achieved Something, I don't know. I'm certainly not thinking about the athletes because track and field athletics is driven by coaches. And if you don't have a coach, the athlete can't improve. It's just about money, I think. Controlling the insurance money. and. But that's not a lot of money. Mm. And Australian Track and Field Coaches Association were singularly funded. They didn't ask for any money from Athletics Australia. I don't know where they think that the money was going to come from. Um, Unless the Australian Sports Commission start wearing the pants and not allowing Athletics Australia to rule the roost, nothing's going to change. Uh, All the the money that goes into Athletics Australia seems to be going to administration. I mean, you hear every couple of months they've appointed someone else for the office and there doesn't appear to be any money going into coaching or to the athletes. Strange times. <laughs> uh, I think athletic. it's almost like they're trying to kill off the sport. They want to get rid of it. But uh, the Australian Sports Commission have got to stand up and be counted. They've allowed it to happen as well. Did you Have you been involved with uh, lecturing um, as well? With, with... Yes. I've lectured for ATFCA. Australian Sports Commission, and I was giving lectures. Um, Reckon Sport SA were giving us some funding for seminars, and um, yeah, there's probably most mostly around athletics. Uh, when I was playing netball, I wasn't doing anything there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I was playing netball, and I think any athletic awards like lifetime awards from Athletics Australia. I've got a um, um, life membership from Athletics SA. I don't have a life membership from Athletics Australia, despite the number of years I've been involved with the sport. They tend to only give out awards to officials and administrators in Athletics Australia. And quite frankly, how I feel about Athletics Australia, I don't think I would accept one anyway. <laughs> um, have you got any um, beliefs in how, how people... Sh- are affected by athletics or have you got any um, theories behind that that you've built up over the years where you think what people can achieve from athletics in life? Uh, I think there's a, a mixed bag. Most athletes I find who are serious about their training are very organised. They're very good at time management. They're, they want to achieve, they want to be their best and they tend to be the people who who might go into teaching or they've got a higher profile in uh, the workplace. They're, they're achievers, and it wouldn't matter what they're involved with, they, they will achieve. You'll then bump into a few people who've lost their way a bit, who expected athletics to provide them with a living, and of course there's no money in athletics, and they've fallen by the wayside. One incident comes to mind... Um, was a girl who was running top cross country when I was involved. She was pregnant with twins and she and her husband committed suicide. And I I think it was because they realised that 
all of the time and effort that they'd put into the running, there was nothing after the sport. There was no financial backing. They would both have to go out to work. Uh, she got pregnant unexpectedly and they just couldn't handle it. Very strange for two people. Yeah, husband and wife. But he, I think he was uh, a schizophrenic. So One other suicide when I was a junior. Uh, I don't know what that was all about. And just recently uh, there was another suicide from an athlete. Very intelligent uh, young woman. Did the folk laureate, got top marks. She was a lawyer, had everything to look forward to, and she just lost her way. So I think there's just a mixed bag like general life. There's some people who can be high achievers and handle the the their achievements really well and progress, and there's others who just fall by the wayside. Perhaps they're the people who expect that life owes them a living, um, but you have to work at life. You can't sit back and wait for things to fall in your lap. Um, you and John have a beautiful place up here at Bridgewater in Adelaide Hills. You sort of built a, a sort of an oasis up here, really. Do you want to talk a little bit about living up yeah. here? And oh, it's wonderful living here at Bridgewater. It's in the middle of the Adelaide Hills ranges. Bird life is amazing, and I've over thirty. 40 years I've developed a garden which attracts the birds and it's a mixture of Australian natives and some English plants like camellias and rhododendrons and azaleas. We've got just a little bit under an acre that's on the slope which I'm finding a little bit hard to negotiate these days but I've got space to grow a vegetable garden and there's nothing like going down bottom of the hill and coming back up with a load of veggies and cooking them up for tea. It's just just wonderful. And we have koalas moving through all the time. I curse the possums. Uh, I've had to put a permanent net over my fruit trees so that we can get some fruit. But I'm probably not very popular with the possums, but they've had more than their share fair, fair share over the years. And living up here and driving down to Adelaide pretty well every day, has that been an issue to you or is it more the drive home that you like? <laughs> I love driving home, <laughs> yeah. When Before the, the new freeway was built, uh, I'd have to drive around Devil's Elbow and invariably I'd be running late for training or for coaching and I would throw my car down through the windy road round Devil's Elbow. I don't know how I didn't fall off the side of the road, but when the new freeway was built, it was a lot easier, and you could almost go to sleep. Uh, once you hit the tunnels, you could just... Now, you have to talk about your Toyota, your blue Celica, Judy. I don't <laughs> think anybody's had a Celica last as long as you made that blue, I think it was early 70s model. Yeah, I bought a 1972 blue Celica, new and it was uh, pr my pride and joy, and I had it for, kept it for 35 years, and we had it restored. It just kept going and going and going, and I just loved that little car. But we had to spend a little bit more money on it, and I was getting to the stage in my life where I felt like I needed air conditioning and tinted windows. <laughs> <laughs> and so we, we traded it into a family who were going to work on it with the um, the Toyota Car Club and 
and enjoy it. So, do you know how many miles you did in that car? I know you changed motors. I think it's once. Changed motors once. Right. So, the, what did it read on the? Oh, I don't remember. <laughs> but it was. It had been to Melbourne many, many times. It's <laughs> wonderful. Yeah, yeah. and it, it never went wrong. It, the only time I can recall was the fan belt broke, and it just never went wrong. I never had to call the garage because my car had broken down. It was an amazing little car. We um, For years, you ran pretty well every weekend on Saturday or Sunday at Cleveland or Belair. Do you have any memories of cold starts in the winter or at Claire, Belair or Cleveland? Uh, yeah, well, Wildlife Rick, you would you remember those cold starts. <laughs> um, we would be in tights and long sleeves. By the time we'd got back from a, an hour run, uh, our legs would be white because the frost had stuck to our tights uh, and the perspiration. Uh, it would be freezing. I can remember you, Rick, complaining um, about your nuts freezing over. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we all had a few falls and um, we would, back in the day before they built the new visitor's centre, an elderly couple ran the kiosk and they would know we were coming and the lady would make us fresh scones. So we, after our run, we would be looking forward to fresh scones, jam and cream and a cup of tea. And it was civilised. It was lovely. That was an amazing time, wasn't it, really? Yeah. yeah. It was something I hated as an athlete, but I grew to love it. And yeah. look, now I look back, some of the best things I did. Yeah. It's quite strange yeah. for, for how much I suffered on those runs. Yeah. I think a few times we got lost. <laughs> Uh, a few times we had to to go through creeks and got a bit wet. Rolled ankles. Rolled ankles, yeah. Uh, in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. But that toughens you up. Um, you know, if you can endure those sort of things, it makes you a tough athlete. When I first started cross-country running, we had to um, climb barbed wire fences. We had to, I remember a creek up to my knees, we had to work through. But nowadays, they run on a, on a race course. I mean, that's not cross-country. <laughs> no, that's for fairies. I mean, we ran the real cross-country. <laughs> Jumping up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I think they, when they have rain at Oak Bank, I think they make them suffer. Oh, the, the school, school the children. Schools, yeah, they, they get yeah, the hardest they, race yeah, in Australia. Yeah, they get the hardest race. I don't yeah. think anybody in Australia has to put up with that mud and yeah. the horrible conditions we make our cross-country kids suffer through yeah. <laughs> to make yeah. a state team. <laughs> that would be the hardest course. <laughs> Fortunately, we never trained on that. No. So no. that was good. Um, you did a lot of training at the old Kensington Sports Field. Did you enjoy it out there? That was a lovely ground. It was surrounded by old gum trees it was sheltered mostly sheltered it had one grandstand but it was a very personal uh, ground all the interstate athletes loved coming out to to race on it uh, through the summer season and it really broke a lot of athletes hearts when athletics uh, sa let the lease go and it went to pembroke and uh, pembroke pulled the track up and so it just wasn't available anymore. And they pulled the track up because they wanted to grass it and make it more like a park for their boarders to walk through to come to go to their school. That's what I was told. But um, yeah, it was a great shame that that track was let go. The track we have now at Mile End is very windy. 
It's not a personal track. It's not a, not seen as an athletics track anymore. It's considered a multi-purpose facility. And when soccer's there, we're not allowed to train there, which I think is outrageous. Especially because Adelaide only has one track. We only have one track. <laughs> I think Melbourne has 23 where the, going up still. Yeah, where the joke of Australia, even Tasmania, has got two synthetic tracks, and Adelaide's got one. That's no, pretty sad. It's, um, you, you have any memories of athletes that you remember, uh, characters or whatever you might have travelled with on teams or anything like that back in those, on those tr- tours? Yeah, going back a long way, uh, Die Bowering Burge, when we were bussing to catching buses to go to nationals, she had a weak bladder and every little town we had to stop for Di to go to the toilet. (laughs) And she was always an accident waiting to happen. If there was something to trip over, Di would trip over. Uh, And she was our top athlete. Uh, She she was uh, an international. She made the um, Commonwealth Games team and an Olympic team. Um, So that was was a bit of fun. When we went to Sydney, uh, we always stayed in King's Cross, uh, which we thought was great fun because our entertainment at night time would be to go up to the top of the hotel with a stopwatch and time the working girls, how long it would take them to go in and out. (laughs) (laughs) And I can remember we, as a group, went to Lay Girls just to see what it was all about. Yeah, they, they were fun trips, and we did all the silly things to the manager. We, you know, short sheet the bed, and athletes would disappear. And probably the uh, Raylene Boyle was the most notorious athlete uh, back in those days, where she would refuse to wear their uh, walking out uniform. She would uh, roll up at the airport, no hat, no gloves, no shoes, and uh, she was always in trouble with the officials uh, and the management of the team. But Raylene uh, was uh, a great person, very generous, wonderful athlete to watch on the on the track. And she was an Olympian, um, but treated very badly by administration. Seems to be a common denominator yes. through sport, doesn't it? Yeah, cut down the tall poppy. <laughs> Australia seems to do that a lot, yeah. the athletes. Yeah. Is, do you think that's because that's what makes them a good athlete? The, the quirky person is the one that actually does become that an amazing sports person? Possibly it's uh, one of their traits. They're, they're just so focused on where they want to go, they don't care about anything else. Sometimes... With those people, you you can't say no. I mean, I know um, when John's been away with the national teams, he's had someone like Darren Clark. Uh, he was a notorious athlete for getting into trouble, but you couldn't. He wouldn't accept no. He was very very successful. Yeah, well. So he, they seem to be able to shuff, shut off all of that peripheral um, stuff and disregard it and say, well doesn't matter <laughs> and in the scheme of things it doesn't matter no. okay just a finish off type question um but we can extend on from this as well what makes you happy makes me happy being outside in the garden watching the birds i love coaching and seeing athletes achieve their goals i get excited with them when they run pbs 
I, I like being a volunteer. Um, I like giving my time. I'm an educator, but I don't think I could go back to teaching. I like to be involved with people who really want to excel at something, who really want to put in a maximum effort to achieve the best possible gain that they can get from themselves. And that makes me happy. That's good. Good food makes me happy. <laughs> good food, good wine. Good wine, yeah. <laughs> the world's not worth living if you can't drink a, a nice glass of wine and a good cup of coffee. Sounds good. Yeah. Well, we'll sign off from there. I'd like to thank Judy for coming on to Talk Town, and we're coming live from the beautiful Adelaide Hills.